I'm Orion Cooling. And I'm Zach Meyer. And this is Shadow Carriers. Shadow Carriers is a curated collection of disturbia assembled by two lifelong storytellers, sonically mixed to bring you into the darkness and out again. We invite you to sit with us in the shaft of moonlight and, if you're brave enough, to step into the shadow with us. You've entered the story too late. She's already hurtling towards the ground. Blue is my favorite color. Her last neurons are firing in the milliseconds before the impact on the broken stone street will finish the job her attacker began. My favorite. The sound of impact after a three-story fall isn't the sound you hear in movies. It's the sound of something used, discarded, laundry from the hamper. The sound of a body forgetting its limbs and sinew once bound a soul to it. She lies in her blue chemise. It drapes around her, his fingerprints leaving blue marks on her neck, on the stone walkway, on the banquette of Rue Toulouse, on the French Quarter in 1807. Her irises flash before they dilate, and she is gone. They flash a brilliant. The story we are about to tell won't go down easily. Neither did Angelique. She fought tooth and nail, and so will we. The story we are about to tell is a window of very discomforting racial inequality in a town forever in the cauldron of alchemic nature, turning its leaden history of egregious customs into ones of commercial gold. This story is a tale of profound white privilege, domestic violence against women, and specifically towards a woman of color. But in nearly every telling of it on the streets of New Orleans during the French Quarter ghost tours, the most ominous aspect is omitted. A word that is as complicated as the motivations for murder, dressed in the gowns of the elite. That word is plassage. It's spoken of nightly, dressed in heightened sexuality. The idea of the elite white men of New Orleans would take a free woman of color as a second wife, meeting her at a social event of the year called Quadroon Ball. I can't tell you how many times I've seen it in descriptions, written in reputable books, and narrated on the streets. The current foremost historians on the subject all agree that these balls, an evening that mixes the oppression of chattel slavery with something out of Bridgerton, rarely, if ever, existed. The only record we have about anyone ever happening was in 1805, far removed from the mid-century mythos. There's a powerful narrative around the over-sexualization of women of African descent in the zeitgeist of the accidental city. The idea that there was a contractual agreement between a white man and a mother of color to take their daughter and groom her to fit his needs smacks of abuse, racism, and sexism. But it's rolling down the street outside the famous hotel Bourbon Orleans, like a plastic bag after Mardi Gras parade. Toxic, dangerous, and relentlessly present. But if lascivious men of New Orleans didn't shop for their would-be mistresses at a fancy ball, where would they find their common-law marriages that did happen in New Orleans? Like, where do you find your last lover? Places like work or social gatherings like church. Free women of color in New Orleans were historically pious. Church. These women were in church, not finding themselves making eyes at affluent men as they filled their dance cards. It wasn't that plassage or common-law marriages didn't exist. They did. They just weren't, well, sexy. 
when the Haitian Revolution sparked in 1809 and free people of color fled to New Orleans in the thousands, sometimes these women had short-term relationships to take care of their needs as they navigated this new life. When the story of Plassage is unfiltered through evocative storytelling, we rob the women of their agency. These women, who had their own homes and their own businesses, who fought tooth and nail to create the semblance of a life against all odds, are reduced to objects. One that allows men to say, It's not my fault. She was dressed that way. Clearly she wanted it. It was as foul then as it is now. And the term is quadroon, as in the quadroon ball was popularized by Thomas Jefferson, who never freed his own children he had with Sally Hemings, or the hundreds of people he enslaved. So where does that leave Angelique? Because in the ghost stories around the building on Toulouse, she, a woman of color, was having an affair with a man named Joseph Babentier. And he lived in the very same building with his wife, Mary, who was the owner of the oyster-shucking business. But if quadroon balls are largely a myth and plassage wildly misconstrued, how would have Angelique met Joseph Babantier? Now this is where our tale begins. It's the late 1850s and Angelique is being marched down to a seedy but large dance hall. In recent years it's called The Globe, known for dark deeds no questions asked. Its location is a short walk from the docks, near the corner of St. Peter and St. Claude. It's just in the periphery of civilized society. We'll call the dance hall by its former name for our story, The Globe. The Globe is pitifully decorated with bunting borrowed from another event. Cigar smoke is heavy. It's full of men who are hunting. Their eyes provide more glow than the dim interior oil lamps that they make overtures to the women on hand. These women, largely women who are enslaved, are here to make their owners money. They are not what was billed on the advertisement for this quote-unquote ball. Grand, sophisticated ladies. They are prey, and they will be preyed upon by men like Joseph Papentier. He had read the broadsheet. It promised the swooning of women of color. He liked that. His yellow teeth came out for it. He loved the idea of any woman swooning for him. He'd never generated that on his own. Here it could be bought. He also knew the proprietor of the evening, a man who capitalized on the legend of the old quadroon ball and had arranged for the entertaining evening. Samuel S. Smith was a northerner who arranged prostitution for the middle class and southerners and visiting Yankees. Just the kind of man Bapentier liked to keep close. It didn't hurt, the ad also said. An additional police force will also be arranged. It made it feel safe. Bapentier liked to feel safe when he was hunting. And they saw Angelique in her lovely blue gown. She had just caught a glimpse of herself in the window. Blue was her favorite color, you see. And she was able to get the only blue dress offered to the women that night. Maybe she allowed herself just to be a woman in a blue dress in that moment. Not a nervous young girl in a room full of predators. Being stalked, hunted by Bapendier. Angelique tried to avoid him, then walking just a little faster than she needed to to get to the crowd in the opposite direction of him but she could feel his eyes following her and eventually she was cornered she brushes by the other women there dressed in dresses years behind in fashion worn by women who came before them women who no one sees anymore 
The blue dress she was so pleased with wearing moments ago served as a beacon in the crowd. He catches up to her. Being a proper southern gentleman, he pretends to have manners. His chapped lips skip past her gloves and kisses the bare flesh at her wrist. He's wearing what was a white shirt, a mangled cravat, and a leer slippier than a dead fish. He smells of dead fish. He says that he likes her dress and brings out her eyes. Angelique tries to hide a physical recoil as Samuel S. Smith watches her standing side by side with the man who brought her here, the foreman for the men who enslaved her. This night isn't about empowerment or changing destiny. It's about survival. She curtsies. So begins a waltz, a bizarre semblance of a dance that would lead her back to his place on Toulouse, the fabric of her blue dress swirling around her in a manner quite similar to the way it would frame her body on the sidewalk months later. There might have been moments of reprieve. We can see her on the third floor apartment above the oyster shucking business. The smell must have been close to caustic, but this space, it was hers. His. Hers. A place to shore up with his demands. She knew how to define her space. The area of her arm's reach to call it her own. She took some comfort in this. And a strange, unspoken connection passed between Angelique and Mary, the woman of the household, Bobandier's bride. You'd expect it to be hostile, jealously fueling the interactions, but it wasn't. Joseph Bapendier was a means to an end. He legitimized a social condition for both women, but yet both wore his yoke. Angelique carried the weight of his advances, but there, in the flower box on the third floor, she planted some flocks, and it bloomed blue. In the legend, a beguiling woman tempts and pressures the affluent man to leave his wife. After months of arguments between the lovers, it culminates in an argument and then a murder, his hands around her neck, her denifestration. But you and I both know the legend, as it's generically told, proposes a sexual union of equals. The concept of seduction here is a possibility next to nil. If she ever asked Joseph Bapentier for anything, it might have been mercy at his murderous hands. I prefer to think she spit in his face before she fell like a meteorite in blue. Bapentier looked at his hands. It's his first kill. In a town where duels broke out, the drop of a hat, his first kill tells us about his sense of honor. He killed a woman because it was his last attempt to dominate someone who he had paid to dominate, but never succeeded in crushing her spirit. So he crushed her life. He takes the stairs, walks by his wife Mary, who looks away. She always looked away. And went down to the courtyard to deal with the body of the fallen woman. He isn't a trained killer. He lacks the instincts on how to dispose of his murder. He drags her to an open sewer, tosses her inside, and goes out to get a hard drink. But someone has watched this happen. It was daytime on a busy street, in a bustling business, and a servant of the home has seen Angelique's fall and Bapentier's clumsy attempt to hide the body. In some retellings, he's a young enslaved boy who works at the stable. It's hard to believe the police force would come to the scene, would have listened to an enslaved person. Harder yet to believe it would have inspired a manhunt to find Angelique's killer. But the story goes, the cry of murder ripped the French Quarter like the Good Friday fire. Bapidier watched the police run radially from his home and knew eventually the outward spiral would turn upon itself. He borrowed his wealth from his wife's feed store in an oyster-shucking business, and the color of his skin would only get him so far. It wouldn't protect him from the repercussions of the Wotan slaughter. He looked at the rope draped across, an aged, heavy hewn beam in the roof. He tried his best to tie a hangman's knot, but this, like in everything else in his miserable life, he failed. But the knot he did tie 
worked well enough to break his neck on the way down and his soul flamed out in a sharp crack and strangulation. And there, for the first time, it was far too late, the only time he felt sympathetico with Angelique. It was a horrid way to die, and well-deserved. He dangled like a worm, on a lure tempting the great catfish of karma, his face twisted in malice, his face a dark blue. It was said that his body's own emissions upon his death alerted the enslaved people of the house of his passing. So the woman of the house, Mary, was left without her third husband in a business that had a murder and a suicide. But Mary Alice swept up the pieces of her social standings and ran that business for another 17 years. The sadness didn't end on that day. The building would endure more death, but before it would reincarnate as a yellow fever hospice, the hauntings had already begun. Bobintier swung pendulum-like off the third floor, and Angelique walked the roof line at sunset. When it was yellow fever hospice, the victims of that horrendous fever used to throw themselves out the window on the third floor, the very same place they swore seeing the malevolent form of Bobintier as a terrifying shadow. There are bars to prevent this escape still across that window to this day. The years whip by. Progress, forgetfulness... They go hand in hand. Eventually, the building becomes known as the well-missed O'Flaherty's Irish Pub. We Irish know for a love of a good tale, so here we have a percolating of poltergeist. A distilling of the damned until the nights are full of stories of hauntings. The lady of the house is said to have materially manifested many times when the song Red as the Rose was played. It's also said she would throw books off the shelf in the gift shop when things weren't being run up to her standards. But in the ballad room, where Daniel Flaherty would play traditional music, it is said her murderer manifested. Babantier pushes and scratches, his shadow tall and wide, threatening next to the staircase of the courtyard. He isn't done harming others. But of Angelique... What of her restless spirit? Did you see her? There's a cold spot by the planter. That's where he hid her body, right? I think she's in my photo. Wow, it's so clear she's even wearing... Blue. Now the planter is gone and so is the traditional Irish music. In a boisterous and delicious restaurant called the Creole Cookery Stands on Toulouse, featuring an oyster happy hour and a delectable drink called a Southern Cooler. They tell a version of the legend on their website... It feels like the desire to really seek out the supernatural elements is dissipating there, and that's all right. These things have their season. As many times as her specter must have heard the twisted version of her tale, her spirit must have yearned for its lies and omitted history to dissipate. It's possible that at the end of it all, Angelique is finding rest. Maybe she's fragmenting like motes of light. Maybe she's now finding the peace that she was denied in life riding that muddy water of the Mississippi, rushing past Algiers Point into the Gulf 110 miles away, where the water meets the sky. You can't even see where the water stops and the sky begins. One radiant, effervescent, unbelievable.
This episode was written by Orion Cooling and Michaela Cruz. Directed, performed, and sound designed by Zach Meyer and Orion Cooling. Production manager is Angela Davis Cooling. Creative director is Sarah Perry. Soundscaping and engineering by Zach Meyer. Proofreading and editing by Katie Sullivan. Guest vocals by Maya Mays and the Meyer Nephews. This episode was written inspired by the pivotal work by author Kenneth Alaxon. The Quadrant Plissage, Myth of Antebellum New Orleans. Anglo-American misinterpretations of the French Caribbean phenomenon. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to support our work, become a Patreon of the podcast and gain access to exclusive content. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash shadowcarriers. If you'd like to buy our storytellers a drink, you can donate to our Venmo at shadowcarriers. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay connected and up to date on all upcoming episodes. And most importantly, if you enjoyed your time with us today, please consider subscribing to Shadow Carriers and leaving a review on your podcast provider. As a small podcast, your reviews and subscriptions go really far to help us grow our listening base and influence the mysterious and chaotic spirits known as algorithms. We've served you this story for a peek to the other side. But as you leave us, we wish you fair winds winds and following skies. Hey, Henry and Leo, what says we head over to Creole Cookery for that oyster happy hour and see if we can find ourselves a ghost? Oh, no!